Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. This is the Word of God. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to prudent people. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of the demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for your word. We ask that today that our eyes would be opened and that, Lord, you would enlighten our hearts and minds to see the truth of your word and that we would uh, change in whatever way necessary, Lord God, to conform and submit to you as our Lord and to your word as our instruction for life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think that we often read passages of Scripture and because of the differences in our culture, because our lives are so different from theirs uh, back then, in our mind, the, the question that I always ask is, do we think about it in the same way that they thought about it? Do we ask ourselves the right questions in light of what we are reading or what we just read? Do we really believe that God's Word is the inspired, sufficient Word from God to mankind? Is that what we really believe? And the answer, of course, should be yes. It is inspired by God. Whether we believe it or not, it's the truth. It's inspired by God because it was written by God, the Holy Spirit. God is the divine source, and because He's the divine source of the Word, we say that God's Word is divinely inspired. It is impossible for the Word of God to have mistakes since God is the author, and so therefore that's why we say God's Word is infallible. It can't have mistakes. It is completely without without error, and so that's why we often say God's Word is inerrant. And then because it is God's final revealed Word to the Christ follower, to the believer, We believe that the Word of God provides everything we need for life and for godliness, right? And and then the way we describe that is we say that God's Word is sufficient. God's Word is enough. We don't need any extra revelation. We don't need anything beyond the Word of God. He gave us His Word, and it is enough. And so those are, when we say inspired, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient, that's what we mean. If we truly believe this then, as we read and study it, 
those facts demand that we ask ourselves the question, then, does my life reflect what is taught in the pages of Scripture? Every time you read God's Word, every time you hear God's Word proclaimed in the right manner, with it being rightly divided, do you walk away from that and ask the question, does my life reflect the instruction that I am given in God's Word, in the pages of Scripture? And then the question is, if not, why not? What is hindering us? What is keeping us from submitting ourselves fully to the Word of God? As we begin to drill down into this text today, beginning in verse 14, Paul gives a very clear command based upon what Colton covered a few weeks back. Uh, In those previous verses, we see that Paul makes no bones about the fact that idolatry, immorality, and yes, complaining against God is flat-out sin against God. The true follower of Christ has no freedom to engage in such things. There is no such thing as uh, Christian liberty in the areas in which the Bible is clear that it is sin. Amen? As we will see in the next several verses following, Paul now will focus in on the sin of idolatry and explain to the church at Corinth why it is especially egregious. What may surprise you, however, is the fact that idolatry comes in many different forms. If you think that you can cross out the sin of idolatry in your life because you aren't lighting candles and bowing down to images of stone or wood or whatever, uh, you may want to think again. We can often be wrong because idolatry comes in many different forms. We all deal with these various forms of idolatry to some degree, and we have to be vigilant and watchful so that we do not fall into idol worship ourselves and most of the time not even realize that we're worshiping an idol or that we've created a graven image. In verse 14, as I said, the Apostle Paul gives instruction in love and he leaves no wiggle room. Verse 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So because you are my beloved, because I love you, I'm saying this to you in love, run away, flee from idolatry, unless there be any confusion. This word flee, as I said, leaves absolutely no wiggle room. It means exactly what you think it means. Uh, This word flee is used about 13 times in the New Testament, and it always means the same thing. Get out of Dodge. Run away as fast as you can. Okay? And he follows that command with this statement, I speak as to prudent people, you judge what I say. So he's promoting the very thing I just mentioned in my introduction today. After being offered truth, once it's laid out there for each of us, once we can see it clearly, a wise person, a humble person, a prudent person will ask that question, does my life reflect the instruction that I was just given in light of this truth in God's Word. Paul is saying, if you are wise and humble, and if you are a prudent person, which means you do have some care and concern for your future, okay? That's what prudent means, 
He's saying, then you will judge what I'm telling you. You'll think about it. Weigh this truth in your own life and make the right decision. Come to the right conclusion as a Christ follower. It's interesting to note here that he tells them to flee before he gives his full argument for why they need to run away. If I see a rabid dog running toward me in an alleyway, I'm not going to consider all of my life's choices and why I chose the path to get in that particular alleyway. I'm not going to be weighing all of those choices. I'm going to run away from the rabid dog. I'm not going to sit there and think about it, okay? And there's a sense of that sort of urgency in what Paul is saying here in his statement. Flee immediately. And now that you are safe, you can appreciate why I'm instructing you not to go that way again. So if I know there's a rabid dog in that alley, I'm not going to go down in that alley again. But the main thing is get safe first and then less way. Let's look at it and see why, okay? So this is the case that Paul's about to make. It's about participation, all right? He's saying, I love you all. Run away immediately from idolatry and do not ever ever participate in it again. Verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then he uses Israel as an example again in verse 18. He says, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? So both of these examples are about participating together in a spiritual act. Something that's spiritual. Something that goes beyond the physical. Do you understand? So the Apostle Paul is using the Lord's Supper here, as we often call it, or communion, to make his argument. When we as a local body take the bread and cup together, we are communing with one another. We are His body, but the body is also communing with the head of the church, which is Christ. All right? And it is a sacred spiritual act. And with that sacred spiritual act comes wonderful blessings for the entire church body when done properly and for each and every individual believer. It's communion. You're participating together in unity. So it makes perfect sense that when a spiritual act is done in the wrong way, or for the wrong reasons, or communion is sought with a spirit, uh, or a, a demon, or a spirit being that is posing, if you will, as the Holy Spirit or an angel of light, then any spiritual connection with any spirit other than the Holy Spirit, other than the one true God of the Bible, it will bring with it spiritual repercussions. And ultimately, if they stay in that state, if they're still in their deception, uh, eternal consequences. So now are you beginning to understand why Paul uses the word flee? It's it's important. Uh, Verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Verse 20, no. 
But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So here Paul is making a distinction to clarify where the real danger lies for all of us. So he mentions the taking part in this the idols or the sacrificed idols. He distinguishes here. Eating meat sacrificed to an idol isn't the issue because it's just meat. It's what's going on spiritually behind the act. And even the image of wood or stone itself, that is not where the danger lies. It's just a rock. It's just a piece of wood. There's nothing in and of that idol itself that is of any consequence. It's what lies behind those idols, the spiritual nature of it, that uh, the danger lies. And this next truth, this reality should send a shiver up our collective spine. If you really stop and think about what Paul is saying here, the danger is in the fact that behind the meat sacrifice and behind the image card from wood or stone is a fallen spiritual being, a twisted, malevolent, God-hated, God-hating spirit that is bent on your destruction and bent on deceiving you. That's what he's saying here. These fallen spirit beings are masters of deception. You want to trace this all the way back to the beginning? You can go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. You can go all the way back to when God separated uh, and made all the different nations, and He separated these spirit beings according to the number of the nations, and we covered that in the past. But these fallen spirit beings are masters of deception. They do not come to us in the form of of a rabid dog, so we can't just see it clearly and then run away. They come most often as angels of light. They come most often as speakers of truth. There's only one God, and there are millions of counterfeits. There's only one truth, which we know to be the Word of God, and it is the most sacred responsibility of each believer to test every so-called truth speaker, someone who says, I am a man of God, I represent God, right? We are to test what they say with God's Word in order to see if they are in accordance with it, if they are in line with Scripture. It must be done. And it cannot be taken lightly because Satan himself knows the Bible. If you doubt that, go back and read the account of him tempting Christ in the wilderness. He quoted Scripture to Jesus. But millions of these, or billions, or however many of these demonic fallen beings there are that follow Satan, they know Scripture too. The Bible says they know who Christ was, they know the truth, and they tremble. But they know they do not have to outright reject truth in front of us to get us deceived, to lie to us. They only need to twist the actual truth of God's Word just enough that it becomes a lie. Or they have to give us a partial truth so they can omit parts of God's Word, omit parts of God's Word, and we only have part of the, the story, pieces of the puzzle, and we can draw conclusions from that that then become a lie as well. 
So if you fall for that, Paul says you very well would be drinking the cup of demons, as he calls it. And all the while, you may even be thinking you're drinking the cup of the Lord. You can be in deception, in deep deception, believing you're serving God, when in actuality, you're serving the will of the enemy. Verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So, over the years, I've known people who simply believed that demons weren't real, that it's just simply a a figure of speech, that it's a metaphor for anything that is uh, objecting against or pushing back against truth. But I believe God's Word teaches otherwise. I believe demons are real. I believe demons are the real spiritual source behind all idolatry. And when someone who worships a false god or bows down to give any lie or any false belief validity, I believe there's demonic forces behind those lies and they have one goal in mind, that is to to convince the worshiper that that lie is the actual truth. To validate them in their error so that they would go all in and seal their fate for eternity. Have you ever noticed the people who believe in ghosts the most seem to see ghosts more than anybody else? Or the people who believe in aliens the most often have these alien encounters? It's it's very odd that it seems to validate what they believed formerly and then they go all in and they begin to identify with that experience. Okay? I say again, there's only one truth and the only other alternative are the billions of lies crafted by the enemy, dispersed by the demonic and believed by the masses who reject our holy God. It is right for us then to ask the question, what are some of these lies that lead so many people astray? Well, the first two we covered this morning in our scripture reading The first two of the Ten Commandments give us a pretty clear picture. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols for yourself, or some translations say graven images. More specifically then, our question should be, what are some of the idols, what are some of the graven images that we can so easily give our allegiance to then? Even believers, obviously, If you've set up a shrine and you're worshiping an idol of wood or stone or gold or silver in your house, um, that very clearly makes you an idolater, but I doubt very seriously anybody in this room fits that category, right? Raise your hand. Okay, just checking, just a quick little, little test there. The idols we give our attention to are usually much more subtle because most of the time we speculate about God. And we craft our own beliefs about Him contrary to what the Word says. So in our ignorance and in our lack of knowledge of God's Word, we fill in the gaps with our own speculation. All right, And the Bible says that's very, very dangerous. Remember, it's, if it's not in God's Word, we don't buy into it. We don't give it any validity. 
Because our battle, the battle that you and I are supposed to be engaged in as believers is a spiritual battle, and it's not a battle over spiritual territory or over authority per se. We aren't fighting in hand-to-hand combat with demons, okay? And I remember when I was uh, young, I read a book by a man named uh, Frank Peretti. It was called This Present Darkness or Piercing the Darkness. Cool book, but not theology, And after that, I remember walking around thinking there was a demon under every rock, okay? I was just super sensitive after that. Well, what happens is we may not know God's Word well enough, and then we read a book like that, and we fill in uh, our theology with, with doctrine from a silly book, and we begin to think along those lines instead. We're, we're, we're not fighting in hand-to-hand combat with demons. Spiritual warfare Warfare is a simple thing to understand, and here it is. Despite all the things that people float out there today as spiritual warfare, here's what spiritual warfare is, put very simply, according to God's Word. Satan and the demons craft lies about God. They twist the truth. And they do this in order to trap people in those fortresses of lies, because if they could buy into the lie and they begin to identify with the lie, then it's like they've built themselves in Helm's Deep. They've enclosed themselves in this mighty fortress that can't be penetrated. And if they stay in that fortress of lies until the day they die, then they are doomed and destined for hell. That's the picture of spiritual warfare. So the true believer fights back with the truth of God's Word. 2 Corinthians, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. And I want you to pay close attention to the wording in this passage because it makes very clear what spiritual warfare really is. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war or battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for, here we go, the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying, what are the fortresses as he's about to tell us? We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, arguments and all arrogance raised up against the knowledge of God, and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the spiritual battle, folks, put very simply, is a battle that takes place in the mind and the hearts of human beings. The devil's lies versus God's truth. And the truth is, for all of us, any higher allegiance to anything other than God is idolatry. Anything that gets more of my passion or attention more than God is idolatry. But as I I said, it can be tricky. And I want to point out a few that even believers in Christ deal with, starting with some of the more obvious ones, okay? Worshiping angels is idolatry. In Texas, uh, when we moved into this new church building, there were like, 
four statues of angels on the premises and inside the building. And the first thing I said when we took over that property was somebody get those things out of here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting because we can look at something that is created by God and a beautiful thing and, and wondrous, I would imagine, to behold, and we can get caught up in that sort of thing. But angels are created beings. Remember, just about any time in Scripture when someone saw an angel and they fell down to worship them, and the angel immediately said, whoa, 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 wait a second. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. That's, that's not a, a proper version. But the angel, said, the angel said, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you. Okay, And they should not be placed on the same level as the Creator. They are created beings. He is infinite. He is eternal. They are created beings. It's interesting to me the, the fascination our culture has had with angels over the years because when I was a kid in the 80s, there was a show on television that I loved. It was called Highway to Heaven. Anybody remember that? Michael Landon, awesome show. Uh, in the 90s, it was... Um, touched by an angel, right? Uh, in the last two years, there's been a, a show about an angel that's been very popular. As a matter of fact, for a while, it was the number one show on television, uh, only it was called Lucifer. Uh, it was about a fallen angel. And uh, isn't that amazing, though, how this fascination, there's this supernatural fascination that people are interested in angels and even fallen angels. So, um, very obviously then, as you might imagine, worshiping demons is also idolatry. Witchcraft and the occult is everywhere today. Uh, we were down at the uh, um, River City Trading Post, is that what it's called, in Jinx, and there are booths there that have tarot cards and witchcraft and bumper stickers and all kinds of stuff there, occultic type things, uh, that obviously it's a... Um, consignment store, so someone has rented that space in order to sell these items. Uh, you can drive down the road and see people with bumper stickers on their cars about my other vehicle is a broomstick and, you know, uh, about witchcraft and, and occultic symbols on their cars, all of this stuff, okay? And the demon worship that was once hidden, that was once occultic, is now taking place out in the open for everyone to see. In addition to that, another form of idolatry is inappropriate allegiance to those who have died. Okay? That is idolatry. We should never pray to the dead. All right? Scripture is clear about that. We should never mark our bodies for the dead and so forth. And this is all rooted in paganism and pagan worship, and it's offensive to God. It's idolatry. We as believers remember those we love those who have gone before us, those are who with the Lord. And we know uh, we have a peace that passes all understanding, knowing that we will be with them again, that we will spend eternity with them again. But don't create an idol of someone who's gone before you that you love. Look forward to seeing them again in eternity. The Bible says that desire or lust is idolatry. Being covetous is idolatry. Uh, again, supreme loyalty to anything other than God is idolatry. So the Bible kind of lays it out, the, the, the root of sin being the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. So um, 
pretty much all sin stems from those things. And we can make idols out of ridiculous things, um, houses and cars, money and fame, honor from men, a desire from women, social status, uh, all of the many things in life that we can pursue that would make those around us think that we're successful or that we're winners. And these things can all become idols in our life if we aren't careful. Politicians can become idols. Um, political systems can become idols. A country can become an idol. Anything that you place more passion towards or put on a pedestal more than God, if you do push it that far, can become an idol. Here's where it gets tricky for believers because we can worship believing we are worshiping the true God, but in fact, we are worshiping a graven image. We're worshiping a false God. Is everybody cool enough? Is it hot to you? Is everybody good? Okay, just want to make sure. Sorry to break in, but I'm burning up. So I just wanted to make sure you guys are. All right. If your God is different than the God of the Bible, if your God is different than the God of the Bible, then you are a idol worshiper. You are, the question is, are you worshiping the God of Scripture and all of His eternal attributes? Is your God all-knowing? Is your God all-powerful? Is He sovereign over all? Has He always existed from eternity to eternity? Are you misrepresenting God? Have you filled in the blanks of your, with your ignorance? Have you filled it in with your own uh, assumptions or speculations? Do you omit books or passages of Scripture that are difficult because they do not fit your desired understanding of who God is, or frankly, you just don't want God to be that person or that being, and so I'm not going to serve a God like that, right? If that is a fact, then unfortunately you've created a God in your own image, and that is idolatry. Do you ignore His eternal attributes in Scripture simply because you do not understand them? or you may even disagree with them. So you try to twist and massage and make God more palatable for you to accept. If you do that, that's idolatry. Are you worshiping the true God in the wrong way? Are you worshiping the true God in the wrong way? In the Old Testament, there are these two men, Nadab and Abihu, and they were, by all biblical accounts, righteous and respectable men of God. Spiritual leaders among the Israelites. And they simply made a mistake, but it was a grave mistake. They brought strange fire, the Bible calls it, into the tabernacle. And basically, it was unsanctioned fire. That sounds strange to us, but let me explain. They had brought fire from some other source, more than likely, than the brazen altar. And so they were supposed to bring it from the brazen altar into the tabernacle. In Leviticus 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, if you're taking notes, write that down. You could turn there if you like, Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. I'll read it for you. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, 
placed incense on the fire and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron watched his sons essentially disobey God and do something what God had not commanded them to do in the gathering there in the tabernacle. And he watched his sons die, and Scripture says that he didn't even speak up because he knew that God was just in doing what he did. So God had instructed them to worship in a particular way, and in their arrogance they chose to take it upon themselves to do it in a way that He had not instructed them to do. So worship of God should always be done in the manner that God has instructed. The body of Christ and our local gatherings should reflect what Scripture tells us is the way we ought to worship. The conduct of the church we should get directly from Scripture and not from our culture. So doing something yourself and saying God told you to do it is idolatry. And similarly, saying God told you something that God did not tell you, that you're just saying God told me this or God told me that, and God actually didn't tell you, that's idolatry. And in both of those ways, we can misrepresent God and we run the risk of giving people the wrong idea about God. It doesn't matter how well-meaning you are or if your intentions are pure. If you misrepresent the God of the Bible, it makes you an idolater, and in some cases it makes you a false teacher. He's probably not going to consume you with fire the way he did those two guys. He's probably not going to strike you dead like he did in Acts uh, to Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, But one day, you and I will stand before a holy God, our Creator, and we will give an account And we will be rewarded for those that we led to the truth, that we led to God's Word, but we will also be judged according to those we uh, led astray in our own arrogant idolatry. And this is the most deceptive form of idolatry, worshiping a God that you claim is the God of Scripture, using all the correct terminology, but in fact your beliefs are in another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, has a concern that these Corinthian believers in the future from our passage today uh, in 1 Corinthians, he has this concern that they may be led astray or deceived into idolatry. And here's how he puts it to them in 2 Corinthians 11 in verse 2. Paul says, or he writes to the church at Corinth, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his trickery, your minds will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted. So you see the well-intentioned men or women, churches, denominations, ministries, they can 
veer away from the God of Scripture and present an idol, a graven image to the masses. And in so doing, they lead hundreds, maybe thousands, who knows, maybe even millions over a period of time. They lead them astray and doing so under the guise of a of different gospel, a different spirit, and another Jesus. And to be clear, all of those things are defined by the fact that you've veered away from the whole counsel of God and what Scripture describes as being the God of the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way through to the very last word of Revelation. Amen? That is what defines who God is. And this is why we have to be so careful. And this is why you've seen some changes over the last few years at Bright Star Bible Church. We do some things a little differently than we might have done them in the, in the day's beginning. And who knows, there may be things that we change along the way as we see in God's Word that we need to course correct, then we will course correct. We take our songs seriously. We don't want to sing songs that in any way would misrepresent who God is. We worship to the best of our ability in the way that Scripture dictates and we take nothing for granted. We, we dare not bring strange fire before the Lord. And if the miraculous takes place at this church, it'll be because it was done genuinely by God's hand and it will not be something that we fabricate or something that we do ourselves under the power of, of ourselves or our own efforts. And we dare not present a variant God, a counterfeit God, or a graven image. Uh, we love the God of the Bible, period. The God of the Bible is holy. So therefore, we fear the God of the Bible in awe and reverence. And that is the right way to be. We know that He is a jealous God and He will not abide idolatry in His house of worship. Look at verse 22 in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Again, do we arrogantly suppose that we can be trite with the truth of God's Word, that we can be trivial in how we present who God really is and His eternal attributes? If we do not know and worship the God of Scripture, the Bible says we worship an idol and we promote and present an idol to those who are seeking truth. We become a barrier between people seeking truth people who need God and the truth because we're veering them away from the truth. We are not stronger than God. We need to remember that every day of our lives. He is all-powerful. We are not. He is sovereign. We are not. So why is it so difficult for us to study and to pour over Scripture to truly know the God of the Bible and submit to Him. Why is it so difficult? Here's why. And I'm telling you from my perspective, and I'm pretty sure it'll line up with yours. Because a God who thinks just like us is so much easier to worship. A God who shares my opinions is so much easier to worship. A God who condones our sin, right? I think God understands, right? We say, God made me this way, right? We use these, these phrases. God understands. He, he sympathizes with our sinfulness. God knows how we feel. 
God loves us just the way we are. Be careful. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's the God that we want to worship though, isn't it? The God that thinks like us, the God that looks like us, the God that shares our opinions, the God that's easy to worship. That is the perfect God for me. The problem is in thinking that way, in thinking that way we have ejected the true God of Scripture from His throne and we've taken it upon ourselves to occupy His own throne. We've sat down in the, on the throne of God, on the throne of our lives, leading people astray, ourselves going astray, when we dare take the place of God and promote or believe in a God other than the God of Scripture. So, in case you haven't figured it out, I think the number one God that, that we are in danger of falling to as, a, as an idol is the one that you see in the mirror every morning. It's you. So let us be a local body and take great care to be faithful to what Scripture actually says about our eternal, almighty God. Let's, in every way possible, make Him the one that we worship and not ourselves. Let's submit to Christ's Lordship in every single way we can. And every time you read from God's Word, every time you hear it preached, purpose to walk away and ask the important questions. Does my life reflect the instruction I was just given in the pages of Scripture? Is the God I worship the true God of the Bible? And if not, why not? What is keeping you from submitting fully to God's Word? That's the question. Every time we leave this place together, every time you put your Bible down, ask those questions. Does my life reflect? Am I representing God the way He deserves to be represented? Would you bow?